0: Welcome to War Nights in Podcast. Scary movies. Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? guys, and welcome to this episode of Horror Nights in Podcast with your one and only host, me, Crystal. I also have my wonderful co-host, the one and only Roxy the Kitty, who adds in her comments here and there, depending on the topic. I upload a new podcast every Monday at noon Eastern Standard Time. So on this podcast, we talk about my life, my favorite horror movie of the week that you guys pick, and anything else horror, so thank you for being here. I also challenge all of you listening to leave me an iTunes review. Not only makes my days better, it also helps other horror fiends find me. You can also find me on the socials on Twitter at horror R Us, Instagram at Horror and Podcast, Tumblr at Horror and Podcast, and on YouTube Horror Nights in Podcast. My um, my podcast is actually streaming now on Spotify as well. Um, so be sure to follow me um, on my socials too uh, for all the latest horror nights and news. So on this episode of Horror Nights in Podcast, we are delving into the 2012 horror film, The Cabin in the Woods. I'll be giving you the Rotten Tomatoes, DB score, then delving deep into the plot, characters, and my overall honest and horrific opinion of the film. So before I get into this podcast, I wanted to tell you guys that I actually recorded my first YouTube video today, and I am super excited i'm hoping that if i can get everything edited and put together it'll be up wednesday uh, if you want to check out that video be sure to follow me on youtube subscribe there it's at horror nights podcasts, and podcasts same thing as everything else and of course except for my twitter um, so yeah, I'm really excited about that. So stay tuned. Uh, also, I want to give a shout out to GarageBand for completely losing this podcast. Um, I recorded this entire episode yesterday, and I went to edit it today, and the audio was not working. So this is going to be the second time I'm recording this episode, but it's fine. I'm not complaining today. (laughs) All right, guys, so let's get into the episode. So Rotten Tomatoes gave The Cabin in the Woods a 91% with 74% of the audience liking it. IMDb gave it a 7.0 out of 10. So, The Cabin in the Woods was released April 13th, 2012, worldwide from Lionsgate Film with a running time of 95 minutes. It was directed by Drew Goddard and written by Goddard and, of course, the iconic Josh Whedon, who we all know as the creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So a short IMDb synopsis of this film is five friends go for a, uh, a break at a remote cabin where they get more than they bargained for, discovering the truth behind the cabin in the woods. So now I'm going to play the trailer. <laughs> Listening. That's the whole point. Get off the grid, right? Hello? I'm thinking this thing doesn't take credit cards. Oh. Sign that's closed. We're looking for, uh, what's it called? Tillerman Road. Not to get you there. I'm getting back. That's your concern. I seriously believe something weird is going on. and scary so anyway i never i guess i never realized how much the trailer really gives away the movie but anyway uh so i want to keep my opinions on this film until the end per usual but i will tease that my opinion may not be what you think so stay tuned oh roxy is coming to join us roxy do you have an opinion on the cabin in the woods I guess not. So anyway, um, so our film begins with uh, some foreshadowing of the ending with these sacrificial images but quickly cuts to two men in a traditional office building setting talking about one of the character's wife's fertility issues. These two men, Hadley and Sitterson, are actually played by Richard Jenkins and Bradley Whitford. So I recognize Jenkins from uh, Stepbrothers and Whitford from uh, the film Get Out and Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. So the two work in some kind of underground facility lab thing that runs experiments, but we're not really sure what what kind of experiments. Um, so the building looks pretty sophisticated and super high tech and it's huge. So whatever they must do must make them a good amount of money or at least the company good amount of money. The two men are then greeted by their coworker, Lynn, who tells them that Stockholm has fallen, which leaves Japan. But we also learn that Japan has a perfect record And that there hasn't been a glitch since 1998. There is also some kind of betting pool that everyone is a part of. The two are now on a go kart as they make their way to their respected office. We then get a loud scream, and the title of the film fills fills the screen and cuts to your very standard and cliche college apartment with our main character, Dana, who's played by Kristen Connolly, dancing around in her underwear, packing a bag, and then grabbing a sketchbook off of her desk. She opens up to a drawing of an older man, who we shortly find out from her friend, Jules, that... The man in a sketch is Professor Fuckwad. Uh, Jules then rips out the drawing, rips it in half, and throws it away. Dana is trying to convince her friend that none of this is even the professor's fault, and then we quickly learn that Dana was sleeping with her professor. Jules then starts to help Dana pack for their weekend away with Jules' boyfriend, um, his friend, and one other friend. So Jules' boyfriend, Kurt, now joins them and is played by none other than Chris Hemsworth, who plays Thor from the Avengers. He throws a football to them. They both dodge it, and it flies out the open window and is caught by Holden, who is played by Jesse Williams, who was in Grey's Anatomy. Holden just recently transferred to their college from State College, and of course, Kurt and Holden play football. Uh, There's some quick back and forths between the friends before they are off to the cabin in the woods, aka Kurt's cousin's country home, to blow off some steam from the hectic lives they lead of football and sleeping with their professors. But before they leave, their group is joined by their cliche pothead friend, Marty, who is played by... Fran Kranz, who is also in uh, Orange County, Donnie Darko, and Much Ado About Nothing. Um, So, funny that, of course, in the last two films we covered, we had pretty much the same exact set of people. We had the jock, the slutty girl, the black guy, the stoner, and the innocent naive girl. Now, I'm going to say it again because I said it in my last episode. I mean no harm when I use their skin tone or their stereotypes to describe them. I I 100% of the time use the character names throughout my entire episode, not the skin tone and not the stereotypes. I'm just trying to paint you guys a picture because this is obviously audio. Um, obviously, oh, also, Marty um, created a contraption that is both coffee mug and bong that he shows his friends. Uh, The gang is now off to their destination. The camera then pans up onto the roof of their apartment building and we see a man is perched on the edge with an earpiece in alerting someone on the other end the nest is empty and they are right on time. So back with the friends, they aren't sure if they're on the right road because the cabin doesn't even show up on the normal GPS. Marty then goes on a tangent about the government tracking them and chips in our kids' heads so they won't get lost and overall how society needs to crumble. Back with Hadley and Sidderson, they now entered into a pretty secured area of the building with a bank safe-like door and an armed guard inside with them whose name is Truman. Um... Inside the area reminds me of the insides of the power plant control center. Shout out to you, Chernobyl, but with a lot more buttons and three giant screens in front of them instead of three actors. The friends are now at a shady looking gas station trying to fill up their tank. Holden then decides it's a good idea to go inside the store even though the sign says closed. Oh, and just in case you forgot that Kurt is a jock. He is trying to pump gas with a football in his hand. So, inside the creepy store, Holden sees weird things in jars before he goes to leave when Kurt calls his name. But before he can rejoin his friends, Holden runs into the store owner, who isn't very friendly. The friends then ask if they can get some gas and also how to find the cabin, which apparently is an old Buckner place. The store owner then exchanges a few words with Marty and eventually calls Jules a whore before Holden breaks up the disagreement. The store owner then leaves them with some cryptic words telling them they have enough gas to get where they to to get there but getting back is their concern. Kurt then throws some money at the guy's chest. It falls on the ground and Marty sarcastically wishes him luck with his business before they all quickly leave. The friends are almost to their final destination when we get our first indication, well Third indication that something is off. The camera follows an eagle flying along the mountainside, but before it can fly towards the caravan carrying their friends, it hits some kind of force field and falls. The group finally gets to the cabin, and it's not exactly the nicest on the outside. It looks old, creepy, and worn down. So Dana is actually the first to venture inside while the others unpack their camper. Uh, It actually is pretty cool inside versus the outside as the rest of the friends also go inside to explore. So Holden opens a bedroom door and goes inside to put his stuff down as a picture on the wall catches his eye. It's a painting of people gutting an animal in the woods. Holden then decides against looking at that all weekend and takes it off the wall to reveal a two-way mirror with Dana on the other side, totally unaware that Holden can see her. He continues to watch her, but then she looks away and starts undressing. Holden is having an internal battle as to whether to keep watching her or to warn her. He goes with the ladder, bangs on the wall to warn her that he can see her. He then calls on the others and shows them the two-way mirror. Holden, being the gentleman that he is, offers to switch rooms with Dana to make her feel more comfortable. They then have some cute banter back and forth as they switch rooms before Dana makes it awkward and goes into her new room. But now she is the one faced with whether she should look as Holden is undressing now. But before he can fully undress, she grabs a cryptic painting and covers the two-way mirror, then covers the painting with a blanket. As she is securing the blanket, we can see the camera pan out and our view switches to several cameras. Basically, a camera is in each room is watching the group of friends inside the cabin, and it's all orchestrated by Hadley and Sidderson. So it seems whatever company is conducting these experience knows, exper- experiments know a ton about their subjects, a.k.a. their friend group. They know their blood type, their strengths, their weaknesses, etc. We also find that the rude stool owner who called Jules a whore is also part of the plan and also a little bit of a kook. And of course the two have him on speakerphone for a good laugh and he calls them out each time. The friends are now all at the lake by their cabin, enjoying their carefree time together and pushing each other into the lake. So back with our duo at the the, uh, underground facility, we see that each friend's heart monitor is also being tracked along with all their internal levels and more bets are being made. It's not clear yet on what the bets are being placed, but there's talk of some kind of aquaman or zoology says it exists. The security guard, uh, Truman, then asks if the director knows anything about the betting pool, to which Citizen says, As long as the kids do what they're told and everything runs smoothly, then nobody cares what they do. The guard then confronts him and says uh, how it's fixed, and he says, No, everything is in the cellar so they can pick. They make the choice on their own free will. So the subjects are given the choice not to cross over into the death grounds by the creepy and rude store owner, but they ignored it and went anyways. So basically the first indication that they were headed into some kind of danger was the rude store owner. Um, So the pool closes and the friends begin partying, music, drugs, booze, and a classic game of truth or dare. So Jules is up first. She picks dare. Marty dares her to make out with a wolf head that's on the living room wall. Jules then says, no problem. Full on starts making out with the wolf, um, head, including a funny flirtation about huffing and puffing. And then she whispers, thank you to the wolf. Once she's done making out with it, it is now Dana's turn. And Kurt calls her out for being a virginal wimp and backing out of a dare. Dana then calls his bluff and tells Jules she wants dare. But before anyone, any dares can be handed out the cellar door behind them, flips open, startling everyone. Kurt blames it on the wind, but Marty calls him out for making for that making no sense. Now the whole group is around the open cellar door and Jules dares Dana to go out and find to go and find out what's down there. Dana then slowly starts to descend down the stairs with only a flashlight for her light source. Her light passes over an old piano, a dollhouse, an old bicycle, old photographs until she scares Until one scares her, and it's a portrait of a young girl, and she screams, causing the rest of the friends to come down. Marty then grabs a kerosene light and lights it, illuminating all the junk that's in the cellar. Old mirrors, books, clothing items, fortune tellers. Kurt tells them the stuff definitely isn't his cousins as they continue to explore down there. There's also an old wedding dress, a necklace, a conch, old film reels. Kurt then notices some strange kind of puzzle ball in a holder. Marty then urges the group to go upstairs, but no one is really paying attention. Each friend is distracted by something in the basement, including Marty himself now. Jules with an old wedding dress, Holden with a jewelry box, Marty with an old film reel, Dana with an old book, and Kurt the puzzle ball thing. Just as everyone is about to either hit a button or put a necklace on, Dana starts reading from the book she found that is actually a diary from Anna Patience Buckner from 1903. The diary entry is morbid and grotesque, but then Dana gets the section that's written in Latin. Marty urges them to stop reading it and not to read Latin, but then something whispers in the basement, read it. I hope I did a good job. (laughs) Marty is trying to get them to stop reading it, but they all tell him it doesn't mean anything and to relax, and Dana proceeds to read the Latin. As she finishes, we see a hand pop out of the ground in the woods off in the distance and then another and another and another until a whole family of redneck killer zombies are making their way to the cabin. So obviously her talking them all talking in Latin set off some kind of spell and now it's coming for them. The camera pans out and we are back with the office building with Sitterson announcing the winner of the poll being the Buckners and apparently maintenance wins. He then goes over to a huge whiteboard and on the board it says all kinds of different creatures and killers like vampires, alien beasts, snowman, unicorn, and angry molesting tree. So Truman and Lynn um, are now standing in front of the monitors watching the Buckners slowly make their zombie ways to the unsuspecting friends. Truman makes a comment about how they are something from a nightmare and Lynn actually corrects him and says everything in our stable is remnant of the old world courtesy of you know who and she points down to the floor so back with our duo hadley expresses his anger because kurt had the conch in his hands now he will never get to see a merman Sidderson then tells him that the cleanup is a mess for a merman and how the buckners have a hundred percent clearance rate They then discuss calling Japan to let them know they have it handled, but they need Japanese crew to get it done because there's too much writing on this. The camera then zooms into another set of monitors and looks like it's keeping track of Japan's team, which has some kind of ghost girl tormenting a a class of young girls. So now back with our friend group who are awkwardly watching Jules dance in front of the fireplace. And then she aggressively and suggestively flirts with both Holden and Marty before Kurt snatches her away to get it on in the woods. You can tell the other three are still kind of off-put by the story from the diary. And Marty seems to be the only one who is catching on to the fact that everybody is starting to act really weird. Jules with the flirting... Uh, Kurt with the alpha male dog, um, our alpha male digs towards Dana and Holden also now has a pair of glasses, but he is reading from a diary so that could account for it. And I actually figured out later when I went to go do my notes why he had the glasses on. Um, We'll talk about that later. Marty then trips himself out on conspiracy theories and goes to look at a book with pictures in it while Dana and Holden continue to read the diary. Jules and Kurt are now in the middle of the woods, and Kurt tries to take Jules' shirt off, but she stops and tells him she's chilly, and then we hear an awe from the group of male workers waiting to see what was under her top. Holden, uh, or Hadley and Sidderson then tell them to all get away from the screens and ask Hadley um, if the, they have temperature control in this sector. Hadley then bumps up the temperature to at least 10 degrees and engages pheromone mist. We see a light mist come from the grounds, and Jules turns to kiss Kurt, but Jules is still against having sex outside. Kurt tells her this is why they came there, and just as she says that, a dial is turned and moonlight shows through the trees to a soft patch of grass ideal for getting it on in the woods. Truman, who continues to be the voice of reason, questions why it really matters if they see Jules' boobs or not, to which the duo explains how they aren't the only ones watching and they need to keep the customer satisfied. Hadley then turns and asks Truman if he understands what's at stake here. We then get the iconic boob shot that all horror films are known for and then another dial is moved. The camera then follows Jules' hand as it slowly moves up, and they get hit with a pickaxe from one of the redneck zombies. She then screams, pulls her hand away, and goes to run as another redneck zombie comes out from behind a tree and stabs Kurt right in the shoulder. He's able to. Um, get her off, and pull the knife out. But then Daddy Redneck Zombie is there now with a bear trap. So this bear trap actually has a chain attached to it. And pardon me if I don't quite understand how bear traps work. I Do they all have a chain on them? Anyway, so yes, this is what, it, it's a bear trap with a chain on it. He hits Kurt over the head with it and launches that Jules' back and dra- drags her back towards him. The other zombies are now holding her back from saving her, while Daddy Zombie lets another zombie slice open her neck with a huge razor-sharp saw. This scene then cuts to Hadley and Sidderson, offering Jules' death up in humility and fear for the blessed peace of your eternal slumber. Um, Hadley then gets up, goes over to a small closet, opens the door, and pulls down a lever. Then in turn, that causes gears somewhere to move, which then causes a glass to break full of what we can assume is blood that pours into some kind of outline of something we don't really know about yet. So now back with our friend group, Marty is in his room reading, finding Nemo, smoking, continuing to hear voices telling him to go for a walk. He then jumps out of bed yelling at the voices that he isn't a puppet and controls his own brain before deciding he's going to go for a walk. So now we have Holden and Dana kissing on the couch and Dana acting super shy and virginal now. Marty then passes them to go on his walk, and um, he's outside now, and he looks up to see that there are no stars. We then see that someone or something is moving behind him, but before this someone or something can get close enough to attack him, Kurt comes out of nowhere, tells Marty to run, and then clotheslines the zombie creeping up toward Marty. I'm pretty sure it was Patience. Um, they both run. Then run into the house to warn the others, and Dana is demanding to know where Jules is, but Kurt says that she's dead. Dana then goes to open the door to find Jules, but is greeted by Daddy Zombie, who just casually throws Jules' head into the arms of awaiting Dana. Dana then screams, throws the head, and they run to close the door on Daddy Zombie. They then start trying to figure out where and what these zombies came from, and Dana realizes it's from the diary she read when Marty says the one zombie didn't have an arm, a.k.a. patience. Kurt then tells them they need to barricade the entire cabin and play it safe and do not split up. So back with their due, Hadley is pissed they aren't splitting up, but Sitterson hits a switch, and a mist of something blows into Kurt's face, who then decides it's better that they split up to cover more grounds. Holden also agrees with him as a zombie hand comes barreling through the front door. Kurt yells for them to run to their rooms, to which the duo is able to lock them all inside. Marty then runs over to the window to close it, and in in that motion, he knocks over a lamp to discover a tiny camera is hidden inside as the pieces break. Um, Hadley then radios for the chem department to pump 500 cc's of therazine into his room, but Hadley stops him. So I actually looked up what therazine is and it helps, uh, treat certain mental disorders such as schizophrenia and other psych- uh, psychotic disorders. So I'm not hundred percent sure what it would do if you don't have these disorders though, but Hadley points, um, that one of the zombies will take care of him soon enough. Marty is now ripping the camera cord off the walls and figures he is on his own reality TV show. But before he can worry about his parents thinking he is a burnout, a zombie smashes through the window, grabs him, and pulls him out, but not before Marty can grab his bong-slash-coffee mug from earlier in the film. He is able to extend his bong and hit the zombie over the head, but doesn't really do much. Marty then runs out, um... But the zombie actually throws his knife at him and hits him square in the back. So Marty is now being dragged away and off screen we hear the knife slice through him thinking that he's dead. (laughs) Um, Hadley is now opening um, another compartment and pulling down another lever that releases more blood into some outline we still can't see yet. Then the entire room, including the cabin, starts shaking. So we are now with Dana, who is trying to block the windows but failing. Glass then breaks um, off to the side, and we see that Holden is breaking that creepy to mirror in between their bedrooms and is able to pull Dana through into safety. They then grab the bed to block the zombies from getting in, and Dana notices the floor is actually another door. She shines a lamp down and sees that it's empty. Kurt is on the other side of the bedroom door and Holden tells him to get down into the basement so they can all escape. So now with the lamp hanging, Dana is able to look around and figure out where they are. They're in the black room that was described in the diary from earlier. Dana then starts freaking out, and Holden tells her to calm down, and they need to look for a door to get out. But before Holden can find a way out, Daddy Zombie launches his bear trap at his back and drags him upwards from the from the floor above them. Dana then jumps onto Holden and pulls him down with her weight. Then Dana, being a badass, grabs a knife and just starts going to town, killing Daddy Zombie. The two are now looking around as the duo sends an electrical current through the knife, causing Dana to drop it without even realizing it. The two are now backing up, and we get a jump scare from Kurt, who is still alive and trying to get them all to safety. Kurt rips off a piece of wood from the the wall and finds a double cellar door to bust out of. They're able to escape from the basement. Dana then asks Marty and Kurt. Dana then asks about Marty, and Kurt says they got him. So the three are now running through the woods and into their camper. We then hear some screaming and the scene switches to the Japanese schoolroom with young girls um, who are now singing in a circle. Inside that circle is the ghost girl who was the cause of the screaming who are pretty much destroying the ghost girl and putting her spirit into a happy frog. The camera pans back and Hadley is screaming fuck you into the monitor that is showing the Japanese girls cheering and laughing. He then starts scanning through different sets of monitors and it's showing a bunch of major cities around the world have also failed. Uh, But Hadley is keeping his cool because he knows that the director trusts him and he knows he's got this in the bag. Uh, We also start to learn that there are actually chemicals in the different things pertaining to the friend group. Something was apparently in the pot that Marty is smoking and apparently there was something in the hair dye that Jules used. Um, I assume it was to try to control them, make them less aware of what was going on. Um, so Lynn is now freaking out and telling the duo that they are humanity's last hope, and if they don't do it, the ancients will rise. The two cut her off when they realize that there is no cave-in on the tunnel, which leaves, leads the friend group to safety. Sitterson is now sprinting towards demolition Crew to find out They actually had no power in their section. He then messes with a bunch of wires and is able to blow up the bridge to get to the tunnel, trapping their friends right where they started. So they run to the edge. So the group is now out of their uh, caravan and they run to the edge of where the explosion was and sees their escape is right across from where the road was blown up. Holden then suggests they jump, to which Kurt grabs his dirt bike. Dana is worried and isn't sure if he can make the jump, but he promises them he can make the jump and has done bigger ones in the past. Kurt tells them to stay in the vehicle, and he's going to get help no matter what. Holden then tells him not to hold back, and Kurt reassures him he never does. He then spins his dirt bike around and goes for the jump. So this is the part of the film where I actually started laughing the first time I saw it because it was just so unexpected and I just completely forgot about the barricade around them. So as Kurt is flying into the air, he collides with the invisible force field, and I assume, obviously, he dies on impact. We then see his bike hit the force field as it goes down, down, down. Dana is starting to piece things together and realizes that Marty was right all along. There are puppets, and they are being controlled by something. The scene changes, and we see Hadley is pulling down the third lever that adds more blood to the outline of something we can kind of see now, but we still don't quite understand what it is. So back with Holden and Dana, Holden is looking for some kind of way around or out through the woods somewhere, but Dana knows that it's all fixed and it's a ploy and that nothing's going to work, and Holden is trying to get her to stay calm. But before they can get any kind of plan into action, a knife slices through Holden's neck and the camper goes flying into the lake. With only Dana left, she is able to swim to the top of the camper and kind of escape. Um, the scene then shifts to the uh, Hadley, citizen and Lynn who are celebrating their supposed victory. Truman, the security guard, asks how it's a victory when Dana is still alive, to which Hadley says, the Virgin's death is optional as long as it lasts and she suffers, which Dana obviously did. We then get a moment where Hadley might have felt some kind of remorse for her, but then he switches his attitude when he sees some new coworkers join them and they have snacks and tequila. Back with Dana, who has finally made it to the dock, but so has Daddy Zombie with his bear trap. The camera pans and we see Daddy Zombie is now wrapping his chain around Dana's neck while the office building is celebrating and partying. There are different kinds of conversations happening all throughout the, the, the uh, building. Are they going to get a bonus? What other kinds of monsters do they want to see? And all the while, Dana is just getting brutally beaten in the background by, the, by Daddy Zombie behind them. Citizen also finds his way over to the demo team and is giving them a playfully hard time but not blowing up the bridge, but the team isn't having it. They explain to Citizen that there was a glitch in their system from upstairs. Citizen then looks worried, but before he can say anything, the ominous red telephone in their office begins ringing. The entire control room goes quiet as Hadley picks it up and says, "'That's impossible. The Virgin is the only one left.'" Then he takes a pause and he says, "'Which one?' So they all then look to the modders and see that Dana is still alive and trying to fight for her life. Just as Daddy Zombie is swinging his bear trap around his head for one final blow to Dana, Marty comes up behind him and gets the chain hooked on his coffee slash bong that Dana, Dana grabs a piece of dockwood and hits him over the head and Daddy Zombie falls into the lake. So the two survivors are now running at full speed towards the cabin as we see the same zombie poke his head out of the lake. So instead of going to the cabin, they are jumping into the grave where the zombies crawled out of and there's another cellar tour. With both under the ground now, we see that Marty has been messing with some kind of electrical box and he has dismembered a zombie as well. Marty then fills her in on what he found. He pulls out a couple wires, and part of the floor moves and reveals an elevator, but there's no controls in this elevator. Marty thinks he's able to get it go down. He then realizes that someone underneath them sent those dead zombies to them. They both jump into the elevator, along with some parts of the dismembered zombie, and it starts going down, but then it goes sideways and lurches to a stop. The thing about this elevator is that it actually has glass walls, and as it stops, Stanislaw moves forward and is greeted by a huge werewolf on the other side of the glass. The elevator then starts moving again, and now it's just one creepy monster thing after the other. There's a screaming ghost banshee, a creepy ballerina, and some large scary man holding a puzzle ball thing from the basement of the cabin. And it's all starting to make sense to Dana now. They chose their destination. They chose how they were going to die. The camera then pans back, and we see that there's this weird underground where all these monsters are being held in glass containment boxes, and it kind of reminds me of 13 ghosts when the ghosts were kept in the basement in the glass boxes. Back with our duo in the control room, they're desperately trying to clean up their mess. Lynn realizes that someone missed one of Marty's marijuana stash, which is why Marty was able to figure out what was going on and the others were not. Hadley is also yelling at someone through an earpiece not to kill the girl until the guy is dead. Truman is able to spot which elevator Marty and Dana are in, so they're now bringing them um, down to where they are. The doors slide open and they're greeted by a different security guard with a gun pointed to their heads. The doors slide open. Oh, I already said that. <laughs> Sorry, guys. He tells them to separate, but before he can take Dana, the security guard is distracted by the dismembered zombie hand that's on the ground grabbing onto his leg. Marty then slams the guard into the elevator wall, knocking him out so he and Dana can escape. Marty also grabs the gun and the knife and thanks the zombie arm for grabbing the guard. The two are now trying to figure out where they are, and they hear a woman's voice telling them that they shouldn't be there and how things should have gone differently. So she's basically trying to explain to them that her company is trying to save humanity and actually not kill it. Um, As she's explaining this This to them, um, we see an army of guards are actually coming right towards them now and they quickly run into an office with, it looks like it's like a control room or an engineer room. There's like a big, um, there's like a window, uh, like a window pane that they can look out of. Um, And they shut the door behind them. So it looks like, as I said, they're in some kind of engineering room with a ton of buttons and knobs that control all the elevators and um, for the ancient monsters. So in the most iconic scene of the whole... Uh, movie, Dana slams her hand down on a big red button, and all chaos ensues. Um, the elevator doors ding open, giant snakes, monsters, and bugs basically tear the security guard to pieces, guards to pieces. Um, the creatures are now loose in the building, and alarms are sounding, and zombies are eating people, throwing people off ledges, and the giant snake's mouths. It's basically every single kill, and every single kind of monster, um, uh in a horror movie all at once. Every time you hear an elevator um the elevator door ding open, it's like a new set of ancient creatures. So back in the control room, Truman is calling Code Black. Lynn has basically given up and Hadley and citizen are trying to stop the chaos, but the monsters have literally chewed chewed through all their defenses. The lights then go out, and it's dark for a few seconds until I assume a backup generator kicks on, but something or someone is trying to break through that huge, big-ass, thick bank door. Um, so back with Dana and Marty, huge bat-like dragon thing has flown through the glass window they're in, um, but they manage to escape, and it's just total carnage. There's little girl ghosts, there's explosions, and just a shit ton of blood. Uh, Marty then tells Dana to jump into a hole that was blown into the wall as the pack of zombies are coming towards them. The ancient monsters are just continuing to wreak havoc. Clowns gutting people, even a unicorn stabbing an employee right through the stomach. Um... The elevator door then dings again, and it's none other than Patience Buckner. So, back in the control room, creatures have made their way in. Hadley is firing at them with an automatic gun. Lynn is screaming in the corner. Citizen is trying Citizen is trying to do some kind of bypass of the entire system, and Truman is being gutted by a gang of creatures that look like um, the, the guy, I believe his name is Sam, from Trick or Treat. He then uses a small grenade and blows himself up, and the creature up inside the control room hadley then goes flying into the control panel behind them and sees something coming through the smoky haze and it's none other than merman so then rest in peace hadley by the creature he wanted to see all along as his blood is being sprayed through merman's blowhole Sidderson and Lynn are trying to override the system and are able to get it open, which is another door that goes deeper into the ground. But before they can go deeper into the earth, Lynn is snatched up by some kind of tentacle through the ceiling and obviously is dead now. So now it's just Citizen left as he closes the floor hatch and goes down the elevator or he just goes down deeper. Now he's in some kind of weird ancient underground tunnel thing. He quickly turns a corner and is then met by Dana who stabs him in the stomach. So, with about 15 minutes left of the film, Citterson begged Dana to kill him, basically. She, he is begging Dana to kill Marty to save humanity. Um, but then they just leave him to die and continue trying to find their way through the maze of the underground. Um, and they enter another room with different stones with etches in them. Um, so, I kind of... I feel like they're... Um, like hieroglyphics kind of a little bit. So Marty then walks over to the edge of the floor and looks down to see some kind of river of death thing. Um, There's like things moving under it. Dana then notices that there are five stone carvings that actually represent each one of them. Dana then says she doesn't, um, Dana then, then says they don't, Just want to see them killed. Uh, These people want to see them punished. Marty then questions why they would need to be punished when the iconic Sigourney Weaver pops out of nowhere and tells them why they're chosen. Apparently, it's different in every culture, but there must be at least five uh, deaths. So the whore, a.k.a. Jules, who is corrupted and dies first. The athlete, a.k.a. Kurt. Then we have the scholar, a.k.a. Holden, which is why when we see him... And that one particular scene, he has glasses on. Um, the Fool, obviously Marty, um, who all suffer and die at the hands of whatever horde they have raised um Leaving the the last to live or die, which is the virgin, a.k.a. Dana, who isn't exactly a virgin, but um, Sigourney Weaver says, who is the director, um, they work with what they have. And if it doesn't work, the ancient ones, and the gods um, who used to rule the earth will rise. So now the sun is rising in eight minutes, and the room is shaking, and the director basically tells Dana that she has to kill Marty in order to save the world. Dana then slowly raises the gun to Marty, and she says she's sorry. But before she can pull the trigger, a big-ass werewolf came out from behind her and bites her into the neck. Marty also saw this werewolf behind her, didn't say anything. So now it's a battle between the director and Marty as the gun goes flying. Marty is able to get the gun and shoots the werewolf off Dana. The battle continues between Marty and the director as something passes um, as a dying Dana. And it's none other than Patience Buckner who slams her axe right into the head of the director. So for us horror fans, we obviously know the actress who plays Patience is Dodell Ferlin, who also played the role of uh, Sharon and Alyssa in Silent Hill. So I did like that little that little nod right there. Uh, Marty then gets his footing and kicks Patience and the director over the edge into the ancient gods underneath. He then goes and sits down next to a very bloody Dana. She then says she doesn't even think Kurt had a cousin. They then exchange apologies and share a joint and, start, and talk about giant evil gods as the building starts to collapse and the ground cracks and then a huge hand shoots out of the ground Up into the cabin in the woods, and the film ends, destroying the cabin and the facility underneath. Now it's time for my favorite portion of the show, The Honest and Horrific Time. So, yes, this film is a horror comedy, and yes, I did enjoy some parts of it, but guys, I really... I never really understood the hype behind this film. I do understand that it does poke fun at other horror and is sort of like a tongue-in-cheek. But I guess when it comes to horror, I don't really like a ton of comedy. And yes, I did did what everybody told me about this film, um, told me to do when this film came out, going with no expectations. And I was into the very cliche beginning with the five young adults going into the woods. Then I was just so confused. Um when Marty and Dana broke into the facility, and then the ending, I was just even more confused. And the first time I watched this, I really didn't like this movie at all. I was just, I was so confused. Um, So I do like how they use very cliche American horror stereotypes, like five teens go into the woods, do some drinking, smoking, and then of course they get killed. Uh, I assume that each culture kind of has their own cliche horror uh, for example, Japan, obviously, with, like, Little Girl Ghosts, with, like, The Ring, and, of course, the original Ring you And I understand the customers that, that uh, Citizen talked about was actually the audience, so a.k.a. us. Um, Citizen says they need the boob shot to satisfy the customers, which basically means the American horror audience. So I, I do understand, and I do think that it's clever. Um, so throughout the entire film, there are references made... Um, throughout that pays homage to other horror films. And the amount of Evil Dead references is actually kind of crazy, but it's also really cool. Um, Of course, like the setting, um, one of the monsters, um, the cellar door leading to the haunted and cryptic basement, and then, of course, the diary that Dana reads, um, all very Evil dead right there. Uh, I also want to touch on the monsters in the film that I mentioned earlier. Now, the YouTube channel Good Bad Flicks did an amazing job breaking down every single monster on that board along with the monsters that were not listed. I have it linked in the show notes if you guys want to hear them all, but a few that were my favorite were Twins, which was a homage to the twins in Stephen King's The Shining, The Doctors, which was a reference to The Doctors in the remake of The House on Haunted Hill, um, Clowns, which of course was in reference for Stephen king's it and the dolls which for um the killers and the strangers and then of course um the guy with the ball is the hell lord which is a reference to hell who is pinhead um the video also explains why horror movies are so foggy the pheromones which i thought was hilarious why character e- characters use a weapon once and drop it which is obviously the electric shock which we saw uh, it also explained how the Ancient one slash the audience is actually us, as I mentioned previously. It explained how we all go to the movies to watch the same thing over and over again and want a lot of blood, boobs, weed whore, and a finale girl. So I basically just summarized the video for you, but I would definitely go watch it. It does have like almost 2 million views, but if you haven't watched it, go check it out. It's really good. They did an amazing job of breaking down literally every single um every single monster that you see in the entire film. I thought it was such a good video. It's not not super long either. I think it's only like 10 minutes long. So definitely go watch that video if you haven't yet. Um, So another thing I wanna touch on is how I am literally the cliche American horror film lover because if you listen to my other episodes, you know that I love me some good old teens getting slaughtered in the woods. I like to see my young idiots going into the woods to blow off some steam and hell breaks loose, and I totally accept the fact that I am, this is who I am. Um, so, The Cabin in the Woods also reminds me of Scream. It takes, um, when it's taking a horror film and kind of putting a twist on it, like Jamie Kennedy's character, Randy, who is the voice of all horror fans, when he explained the rules of a horror movie, like who is going to die and why. Uh, The Cabin in the Woods obviously takes it a step further and shows us who is behind it all and how it's literally this huge organization with special buttons and levers to control the characters. Um, So why don't I like this film as much as everyone else? Well, because it's not my normal run-of-the-mill horror movie. I appreciate the effort of making a different kind of horror film, but I also... Just really love my standard teen just getting killed in the forest, guys. <laughs> um, okay, so let's move on to the stuff that I read on Wikipedia about The Cabin in the Woods that I want to share with you. So apparently director and writer and writers uh, Drew Goddard and Josh Whedon wrote the screenplay in three days, which is amazing. Um, Whedon described the film as an attempt to revitalize the horror genre. He called it a loving hate letter to the genre. And he continued, it's a serious critique of what we love and what we don't about horror movies. I love being scared. I love that mixture of thrill, of horror, that objectification, identification thing of wanting definitely for the people to be alright, but at the same time hoping they'll go somewhere dark and face something awful. The things that I don't like are kids acting like idiots. The the devolution of the horror movie into torture film or torture porn and into the long series of sadistic comeuppances. Drew and I both felt that pendulum had swung a little too far in that direction. So, um, AFX studio, which, who is owned by horror legend, um, Heather Langenkram and her husband, David Leroy Anderson said it took about a thousand people turning into different or turning into 60 different kinds of monsters in order to execute the film. Um, Anderson stated, "We had nearly 70 people at peak, but in uh, effect, we had 140 people because everybody had at least two jobs. It was crazy, but people had an incredible time. None of us ever, none of us are ever going to forget it, and we're never all going to be in the same room again." So I don't want to play downplay the creativity of this film, guys. I think it was a great story. I love all the horror movie references. And I think that once I really sat down and like watched it again, did my notes, I definitely have a better understanding of it. And I have a better appreciation of it. But it's just not really my favorite. Um, I totally respect that everybody loved it. But it's just wasn't for me. Um, In no way is this film boring at all. I thought it was very entertaining, and I did laugh because it is a horror comedy, but at the end of the day, I'm just going to stick with my good old American horror and my teens going into the woods, but it really was a good spin on the average American horror movie because it kind of explained why Every single, you know, cliche was used and it's because you want to satisfy the audience that's watching it, whether it's a Japanese audience, an American audience, you know, whatever the case may be. And I thought it was very clever. I thought it was a really great twist on, you know, the genre as a whole. But just not for me. And I'm really glad that you guys picked this movie so that I could do it again. Because I really did find it interesting to kind of go back and look at all the different things um, that I didn't quite understand the first time. So I really do, um, I really did like the film. It's just not, it's just not my favorite. And totally respected it if it's something that you really like. And if it's a film you really liked. Um... But yeah, I <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's just how I feel. Obviously, I'm always gonna tell you guys the truth. I'm never gonna lie about something. Um, and yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Horror Nights and Podcasts with your one and only host, me, Crystal, and my co-host, Roxy. If you enjoyed this episode, go listen to another one, binge it out, leave me a review, and have the best week wherever you are. And whatever you do, remember to always give your honest and horrific opinion no matter what. All right, guys, I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.